You're listening to Fun Shack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm speaking with the McFarlane's dream team. David Gork is head of public policy at McFarlane's, where he was a solicitor before becoming a British Member of Parliament. His political career includes being Chief Secretary to the Treasury with responsibility for public spending, Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, and Secretary of State for Justice and Lord Chancellor, the first solicitor to take that role. He's joined by his colleagues Shailen Patel, Head of Corporate Advisory at McFarland's. Shailen advises on financial, strategic and regulatory matters with a focus on asset management and private equity. And Damien Crossley, the firm's Head of Tax and Reward. Damien specialises in advising fund managers on fund formation and transaction structuring. He's also Chair of the AMA Alternative Credit Council Tax Committee. Gentlemen, welcome. I read the other day that the Collins uh, word of 2022 was permacrisis. And I read that and I thought, well, yeah, it does. It does seem like that. And the thing with private markets is there's already enough risk that you're taking on. You want the rest of the world to be as stable as possible. And that just does not seem to be the case in terms of the world itself, but particularly in terms of Britain and British politics and regulatory affairs and so on. David, any sign of things uh, settling down in 2023? I think the chances are it'll be a quieter year than 2022. That, that of course, is not particularly a high bar. Um, 2022 was an extraordinary year with you know, numerous prime ministers, chancellors. Certainly the approach that Rishi Sunak is going to want to take in 2023 is to calm things down. Um, he's looking at trying to rebuild some trust. If you look at his sort of general sort of political messages, it's it's show not tell. You know, he's not making great claims about what he's going to do. He he's setting out some relatively modest objectives about bringing down inflation and so on, and then wants to get to the end of the year and say, "See, I delivered," and 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 that's what he's trying to do. And and to be honest, both the government and the opposition are really preparing for 2024. The expectation is that the next general election will be in October 2024. And so both parties are going to be wanting to kind of get problems out the way. That's the plan. But anyone who's gone through the last seven years or so of British politics will know that things don't necessarily go to go to plan. And, uh, you know, who knows if the Conservatives are trailing badly in the opinion polls uh, in the autumn, as they currently are, um, then you know Conservative MPs might start getting edgy. The problem, though, is isn't it British finances? Yeah, it's a really big difficulty, and and you know you look at the November autumn statement. You know the numbers just about add up after Jeremy Hunt came in and uh, essentially reversed everything that Kwasi Kwarteng had announced in his September mini budget. Um, and, you know, the fiscal rules have in truth been loosened. They are dependent both on taxes going up and also public spending, maintaining the levels that were set out in, in 2021 when the expectation was that inflation was going to be very much lower. And then some really quite big uh, spending cuts after the next general election that I don't think anyone really thinks whoever wins the election will necessarily put in place. So the fiscal situation remains tight. I think things look better today than they did in November uh, because energy prices haven't been so high. The cost of the energy support package is likely to be you know, very significantly lower than was expected. If inflation falls uh, over the course of this year uh, faster than was expected in November, and, and that seems to be the general expectation, um, then debt interest costs are also likely to be lower. But I don't think anyone should kid ourselves. That gives us lots of wriggle room. Um, I, I think there are still more tax rises to come, but probably not this side of a general election. You've walked the corridors of power in the Treasury and so on. I've often wondered, to what degree do they think about or understand or even know about the private private market world, fund managers, and to what degree are fund managers and asset managers a target? Well, there is, I think, to be fair, there is an awareness in, in, in Treasury. And I mean, you know, there has been you know, strategies to try to attract you know, more activity in the UK, a sort of sense that, uh, uh, you know, we could, um, uh, a sense that we could do more in the UK. And there are ambitions towards that, you know, back when I was in the Treasury in the, in, in the mid-2010s. 
um, you know, an attempt to sort of what can we do to make this a more favourable environment. Um, but you know, there are always pressures, and you know, you have got a, a you've got a political pressure to try to make any changes as kind of progressive as possible. Um, there is sometimes, not within the Treasury, I, I should say, but there is a sort of political pressure about, oh, you know, we're too orientated as a country towards the city and so on, which I think you know, is, 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 a, is, is a mistaken attitude, but that, that is definitely kind of out there. Mm. Um, but no, there is, there is an awareness within the Treasury that, that perhaps there is a, you know, there, there are some strengths in the economy and we have to be kind of careful with that because we, you know, we have made life a bit more difficult for the city collectively mm. um, with our departure from the European Union uh, and uh, and also a sense that there is a sort of bit of an opportunity that could you know could we could you know, could we have more funds onshore rather than going elsewhere mm. which we can which we can talk about so so there's an awareness of it but you know you've got to got to put it in the political context I was overplaying myself slightly with the question I know the BBCA does a great job in terms of raising awareness of of the industry of the fund management industry but also of the impact in the real economy as well of of, of private equity activity. Um, but the other thing I've often wondered, and I don't want to give anyone an excuse to raise taxes, but I wonder about the the uh, practical mobility of the asset management and fund management industry. Um, what are what are the practical and regulatory constraints to the mobility of capital? We're probably more concerned about the mobility of people than the mobility of capital. Um, and I think the reality is that the people are very mobile. Tax is a key, key driver in terms of where people locate themselves. A huge amount of the UK asset management industry is um, comprised of people who weren't born here and therefore don't need to stay here. Um, other jurisdictions are making a big effort to try and attract them. So um, in recent, you know, before Christmas, Spain introduced a new carried interest regime to half the tax that is paid on carried interest. Germany has an attractive carry regime. Italy has brought in an attractive carry regime and a non-domicily regime. Even France has a has an impatriate and a and a carried interest regime. So there are lots of places people can go to within very commutable distance of London to um, avail themselves of more attractive tax rates. And I think the other big thing that's changed over the last few years is 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 the sort of remote working of COVID. The idea that you could sort of you know move to Milan and conduct a European private equity business from there was probably thought, thought very difficult in 2019. But nowadays, you know, with, you know, Zoom and Teams calls, you can readily come to London a couple of days a week and be no different to anyone who's living out in the suburbs. So I think that's the real challenge for the government is that these pe there are very few people paying a huge amount of tax and they're incredibly mobile. And the tax rules, both in the UK and abroad, would facilitate that movement. And so it's, it's, the tax revenue is somewhat sort of leaning over a precipice, I think. Are we seeing movement already? Yes, but not in numbers that you would notice. I think the concern is that if there were material negative changes to tax, you would see some of the senior people leaving and generally, in my experience, the junior people like to be near the senior people. Um, and so that's what follows. That doesn't mean, you know, they would all close down their offices in London. And it is, there are some challenges which we've looked at in terms of establishing hubs in other European jurisdictions. But you would definitely see, I think, a evening out of the you know, populations of asset management across the European financial capitals. Ross, when I was in the Treasury as the tax minister, um, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's a good idea for me to admit this, but I was very heavily involved in the last time we changed the treatment of carried interest. Um, and you know, before that... I mean, I'd be interested to hear what Damien uh, thinks about this. Ignored the, my letters on the subject. Yes, I think I would, yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry about that. But um, well, politely replied. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, eventually. Uh, but we, the advice certainly that, that ministers were getting, that I was getting, was that at that point, prior to those changes, the UK was very competitive on carried interest. And the changes that we made uh, under a certain amount of you know, political pressure then meant that we were um, in the pack 
you know, we were no longer kind of, wow, you know, isn't the UK got a great advantage on this? But we were kind of, you know, we weren't massively uncompetitive. And the worry, and, and you know, you asked earlier about, you know, what did the Treasury think? But, you know, we've also got the prospect, you know, the, the likelihood is that in 2024, there will be a change of government, a Labour-led government. And they're putting a lot of you know, emphasis on, you know, getting rid of carried interest altogether. And and that would then move the UK not from being in the pack, but for being an out outlier. Getting rid of the tax break on carried all, interest. Yeah, altogether yeah. and treating it as income tax. And if that happens, you know, that then does raise questions as to what the behavioural response will be for the reasons that Damien's talking about. Is there a rule of thumb tipping point with regards to the level or the structure of the rules that you would expect to see uh, significant ability? They've put the rules up on carried interest to 28% and that was tolerated. That, as David said, is in line now with other jurisdictions. You know, clearly, the, the current proposal of moving it entirely to full income tax rates would be um, would cause a lot of people to to move. I think there's also the point around stability as well. So the UK for a long time for the fund management industry more generally and private assets in particular has always been quite stable. When you sort of think about a lot of these other European jurisdictions, they don't have the same track record. And there's a question mark as to whether some of those will have effectively what you might consider an introductory rate to get talent to move. And then actually people move and they follow suit on what the UK did. But I think if the UK can hold its line or stay stay in the pack, I feel like there's a lot of trust that's probably been built up over a period of time to realise that actually this is a good safe place to park your capital and therefore for the talent to remain here. So I think it's just getting that right from a political perspective. That would be interesting. Observing the competition for talent in Europe is quite interesting because look at Spain. Spain's budget before Christmas, they introduced a wealth tax and reduce the tax on carried interest by 50%. So, I mean, and that just, there shows you um, that these governments are getting quite practical in terms of trying to attract talent. And, you know, for, you know, it's unthinkable, but they have done. And that's because they want to attract, particularly, you know, they a lot want to attract Spanish people back to Spain, but they also want to attract other people um, mm. to, to Spain. And, you know, they will be successful in doing that and they will raise more tax revenue because people paying half tax is better than people paying no tax. And But in this country, it's become so politically toxic that I don't think that sort of message really resonates. Mm. Maybe it does. But. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's, yeah. it's 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 difficult. And look, I mean, I don't know how political we want, want to get, but I mean, I was having a conversation with a very senior Conservative MP the other day who says that um, yeah, the, the trust government has given tax cutting a bad name and, and it's sort of quite hard. And, and, you know, we talked earlier about the sort of political situation. You know, one of Rishi Sunak's challenges is going to be, well, kind of where's the growth plan? And and he'll kind of get some criticism from the right saying, well, should we be getting more competitive on things like corporation tax and 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 CGT, but but the kind of pol- the, the the big political threat to him is is on the left, and um, you know Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves, you know have have changed their position on public spending and you know moving to the centre on quite a lot of things, but on things like non-doms and on carried interest. You know, they're 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 seeing that as 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 a differentiator. Just going back to the more technical aspect of the mobility of people and capital. I mean, how does it how does that actually work in practice? You mentioned that talent's more important than the capital, but what about the funds and how you can structure where the assets are? The capital is at source. You know, it's in the pension funds, the insurance companies, the sovereigns. That's where the money is. I mean, where it is rooted through, I think, is sort of neither here nor there. So whether that money goes to a Luxembourg fund, a UK fund or an Irish fund doesn't really matter other than the you know, service providers to those entities. What really matters, I think, next is where that capital ends up, um, which is really around, you know, is which goes to the question is, is the UK an attractive place to invest? And that goes to the quid, things like stability um, and, you know, being confident that, you know, that your investment is a, is going to be <clears throat> is going to be there when you know when you come to want to realise it and uh, and there've been some challenges on that on the tax side so there's been the government has proposed changes to the rules on sovereign immunity and that's obviously a quite a techie issue but actually one of the 
you know, the UK has a very attractive regime for non-UK sovereigns investing into the UK and basically doesn't tax them. And that's attracted a huge amount of capital into the UK. And there have been proposals to change those rules, which would actually make them worse than other jurisdictions. So rather than taking them into the pack, to take um, David's words, <clears throat> it would take them outside. Now, those proposals are, are on hold um, at the moment, but they may well come back. And that's, you know, you talk about flow of people, but that's a question of flow of capital. And I think it's obviously going to be important for the UK to continue to attract sovereign wealth investing into particularly residential property and you know trying to help you know build houses and things like that and i think that's another infrastructure so at the same time as all this kind of let's say more more political volatility is happening we've also got the the kind of the macroeconomic outlook and we've gone from a, a situation where central bankers weren't even thinking about thinking of raising interest rates to basically on a stairway not to heaven this impacts asset allocation and all the way through to private equity. You know, I never talk about macroeconomics to my, with my guests on this show because, you know, the great thing about private equity is people just focus on the detail, on the specific, on creating value on the ground. But there comes a point when the world becomes, you know, it impinges upon you, when it becomes so volatile that you need to start stepping back. Are we going to start seeing private equity and private capital firms um, thinking more about macroeconomics and hiring economists and political advisors and taking more of a big picture view. Do you think? Well, we're certainly in a in a a, a less stable world than we were um, on interest rates. But having said that, we were in an extraordinary you know, period of time where interest rates. I mean, how many years did interest rates not change when they were essentially at sort of rock bottom? Um, I mean, it now looks, most commentators seem to think that you know, in, interest rates are going to peak at a lower level than was once thought. You know, it's going to be 4.5%, not 6%. Um, and, you know, you don't have to be that old before you can remember interest rates were, you know, were in the you know, double-digit numbers, you know, quite often. Um, so you could argue that this is a return to normality. I think if you take that to the sort of private private asset firm context, I would suggest that most of those people who are heading those particular desks and the person who's heading the firm probably has enough of a view of the markets to say, do I need to buy in more data? And you might see more specific reports being bought in to perhaps overlay what they continue to do. But I think when you get into the specifics of particular business se sectors and you understand the returns, what you're really looking at is if the cost of lending is, is increasing, am I able to increase the top line to compensate for that, to create the same deal values, et cetera. And if you're doing it in a lending context, are you able to effectively raise your rates? And have most, of the, most private asset managers have floating rates. So if you're going up, will your companies that are borrowing from you be able to repay you? And it becomes quite a micro decision ultimately, but there is a bit of a macro context to it, which I think you probably wouldn't want as a long-term cost thing in your business, because I'm not sure that'd be deployed, deployed readily all the time. So I don't know if that answers your question. It does. I think the answer is no, because it quickly becomes a micro decision anyway. Yes. Yeah. 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 But what about, so stand back a bit and go up one level to the uh, the LPs and the institutional investors. They've got lots of asset classes they could invest in. Even within private markets, they could go into private equity or to private capital. As as the the, the monetary and macro situation changes, how is that equation changing one of the interesting things is that private credit has only really existed in its current form in a low interest rate environment so if you think about since 2009 massive rise in private credit funds direct lending funds and you know cost of finance has been practically zero and they all charge interest at cost of finance <clears throat> plus a margin and that margin was zero and therefore you know direct lending fund was delivering sort of seven, eight, nine percent, you know, returns. Um, and there was a very clear clear sort of blue water between their returns and, you know, you get into private equity. If you start having base rates of four and a half percent, then all you know, the the margin might get compressed a bit, but you're seeing you're going to see gross returns in private credit going up, subject to default rates and and and, and risk around that. And that, you know, will, in theory, attract potentially more capital to that asset class because on a risk-adjusted basis, an investor might think, actually, I can get a better return 
um, from credit than I can from private equity, which is going to suffer from less ability for sort of financial engineering through leverage itself. So you might see some compression between the asset classes in terms of returns. Equally, you know, private credit funds, you might say, have operated in a fairly benign environment since 2009. And, you know, there's been so much, you know, state support to businesses that perhaps, you know, they haven't suffered the defaults that they might otherwise have suffered. So, you know, there's good things for credit funds in the sense that, you know, they've got higher returns coming through on a nominal basis, but they just need to make sure they don't have many defaults because a default with a credit fund, you can't really win that back very easily. So it's a completely two-edged sword. You can go come full circle with the argument and decide that actually there's pros and cons on both sides. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm a tax lawyer, not an asset <laughs> allocator. <laughs> but, um, but, we, but we haven't seen a serious downturn, I don't think, since, since the private credit market has constituted a large part of the, 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 the total market. How, how might behaviours change? How might they change in terms of their interaction with portfolio companies and you know, getting their money back, for example? One of the things about private credit businesses is that they've got a team that's really focused on deployment. And if you look at, I mean, they're paid to deploy. They're not really set up that well often to manage businesses. I mean, that is a different skill set. And the, the skill set you need to run a portfolio company is very different to one to assess its credit rating for the purpose of lending. So if th th those businesses now will be very much thinking about their workout capabilities and ensuring that if they do have a default, that they get their money back by, you know, taking over the asset if necessary and, you know, turning it around and, and getting their money back. And that will be key to their performance in many cases because <clears throat> it's going to be inevitable that they are going to have some defaults and how they manage those out will make a will be the difference between whether their fund performs or doesn't. Uh, but that is a massive drain on time hmm. uh, to have a team's pull towards looking after a widget manufacturer when in fact you want your team focused on deployment. So I think they'll those I mean those funds will to extent they haven't already will be very focused on ensuring they've got a balanced skill set. And I think they've got to have a look at what they've got baked into their contracts in terms of protection as well. So you know, Damien mentioned sort of stepping in, but, you know, some of those contracts don't necessarily give that right, depending on when, when in the cycle you've invested. So I think there might be a, a relook at how protections are baked into those contracts and then actually whether if the returns are starting to get similar to what you might want as a private equity manager, if, if the rates do continue to rise beyond a four and a half percent cap, you might see, well, in the, if you do have that protection baked in, whether you have a similar to the PE model of a value creation team, <clears throat> where, where, the, where the private credit starts to think about something like that, but that then eats into your margin because you've got the real cost of hosting a team like that. Those people don't necessarily come cheaply. Um, Unless you're a multi-asset manager. Uh, if you've got you've a multi got, exactly, and then you'd have to redeploy yeah, that and yeah. put, put, allocate the cost and the overhead to the specific, specific segment of that business. It would also be interesting to see that the, the value of relationships between borrowers and lenders in, in this new market? For, for credit funds, the relationships are key and how they behave in this situation is going to be important because they are, their relationship with their sponsors, you know, the sponsors of the private equity funds, you know, is going to be important to their future lending. And if they act in a way that is not seen to be fair, then, you know, that will damage them significantly um, in the market. So I think you will see the direct lending funds, where it's all about relationships with sponsors acting, you know, cautiously um, in relation to assets. Obviously, for secondary credit funds who don't really care about, you know, the relationships with sponsors, they would act differently. But those are in the more liquid markets where they've gone in and bought debt secondary. A lot of these, um, you know, a lot of the, in the mid market, it's, you know, it's, it's bilaterals in or, or club deals in many cases, and the relationships are key. So I think, you know, they will be responsible, but there will come a point where the sponsor will accept that the time of its ownership is is come to an end. And, you know, it'll often be a consensual handing over of the keys and they will end up having to, you know, manage that asset. What do you think about the um, the existence of credit funds in a situation where we might see a 2008-style credit crunch. I saw a, a note from a bond analyst, not a world I know at all, last week saying that we're at maximum convexity, i.e. That, that bonds are not 
pricing in the current situation and we either need then a bounce back in growth or we will see a, a serious credit crunch. If we were, what what role in systemic risk could private credit funds play? Does their access to a, a, a longer term capital help ameliorate that potentially? They have committed capital and they've got lots of committed capital and they want to deploy it because they're paid to deploy. So in a sense, um, you know, there, there should be capital in the mid-market both to um, do new deals but also refinance existing deals. I mean, that's the other thing about the private credit market is huge amount of their book is the refinancing of loans that they've already made. And so they, you know, they will want to continue to support the businesses that they've previously supported because that is actually a large part of their pipeline for deployment of new funds. So um, I don't, I don't see that market particularly drying up. I think, I mean, again, I'm, I'm going desperately out of my area of expertise, but I think where you see the markets drying up is in the big cap space where, you know, the bond markets, I don't think are, are open and, but that's not really, you know, in the sort of the UK mid and upper mid market, I don't think that really impacts. And the credit funds have got huge amounts of capital. And obviously it's more expensive, but, you know, private equity firms, I think, still want to deploy if they find the right asset. So deals will happen. They'll just question the pricing and how long they take. So a similar thing is kind of happening in the private equity world, isn't it? I mean, you talk about kind of follow on deals, but we're starting to see these continuation deals and continuation funds where private equity firms are buying back their own assets. Is this a flash in the pan? If you've done the hard work of building through a, a, a business or a portfolio of businesses and you can see the fundamental value and it might not be priced in and you can say, well, hold on, I can sort of perhaps follow the journey of the growth in these investments into the size of my management business, then you are locking in some of the some of your carry, for example, in sort of moving from one fund to the next, but also you're keeping what you think are your golden assets for an opportunity to create further value. I think there is quite a lot of protection that management teams need to build into making sure they're taking the right exercise to independently value what they've moved across and that they're taking the right steps to prove out that continuation fund. Can you give me an example of, of those protections? Are they contractual? Is it a, uh, just a due diligence type exercise? Well, I think you want, I mean, that's, those transactions take place with sort of, you know, fairness opinions and, and valuations and, and, and different levels of testing of the market will be done. And obviously by, you know, the market is to some extent proven by the new investors coming in and, and you know, and pricing it. I mean, those... I mean, I think to step back um, for a second, the the alternatives industry um, at the manager level has had a real focus recently, particularly on, on management fee income. So the listed managers in the US have, you know, they, they get a much bigger multiple in their, you know, on, on their FRE, their fee-related income than they do on their carry. And so you saw... In the last few years, the US, the big US listed houses trading out basically reduced expense ratios in, in return for the team having a higher share of carry because the public markets value the, the predictability of management fee income much more than they do the unpredictability of carry. Whereas the team think that they can price the carry well and they think the market's underpricing the carry. So from the team's perspective, it's not a bad trade because they are happy to give up management fee income to the group in return for a higher proportion of carry. And that's what happened in the US markets. But that feeds over into the UK markets. You saw, you've seen European managers list, you know, EQT a while ago, Bridgepoint, CVC has been rumoured to be going to market. And those houses, again, have been looking to, um, you know, have the listed entity have a higher share of management fee income than they do of carry. But that, and and that has but that filters down into the unlisted market where there's a massive focus on building up your management fee income because that's what you can get a large multiple on. And there's a huge amount of asset management AMA going on in terms of stake sales or in terms of mergers or even prospective IPOs. So this idea of building your AUM, your management fee pay AUM, is a massive driver. And you need to look at the continuation funds in that light because if you've got a asset that's worth you know two billion in your fund and you bought it for you know half a billion 
you know, mm. if you can sell that to a continuation fund, your fee-paying revenue is now working off the two billion, not the original cost of the new investment. So it's a great way of building your fee-paying AUM. And if you not if you take that management fee income for your continuation fund and run it through a sixteen times multiple, just think about the value, you know, creation you're creating for your management company through that. So the reason why people want to do it is very obvious. I guess that it'll carry on happening for as long as investors will tolerate it. That's all new to me, and that's fascinating. I've only ever thought of continuation funds in terms of we own a nice asset, we'd rather not sell it for structure, purely structural reasons, we'd rather own it. But what you're saying is, I think, is like there's, there's, there's a kind of a conceptual move in terms of relative value from uh, people valuing growth and potential to people valuing stability and visibility of earnings when it comes to asset management yes yeah and that and that's why we saw the innovation being driven by the listed market which because the public markets have always really valued stability over growth but now that's feeding into the private private because markets. ultimately yes because i think ultimately if you think about the process of asset management consolidation you know small businesses grow businesses merge and ultimately they may be sold into a traditional asset manager or they might be listed so you can see why the pricing of a listed manager filters its way back down the chain because that may ultimately be the destination for these managers so i think you know there's there is there is a huge drive towards that and um that will continue i suspect so is it a question of uh eat or be eaten well i think there there are some managers i mean the other thing is if you're a founder of an asset management business you want to think about, you've built all this value. Do I want to give it to my junior colleagues for free or do I want to sell it for hundreds of millions of pounds? And it's that probably doesn't take that long to answer that question. <laughs> I mean, if only it was an option available to law firms, um, but it's sadly not yet. But the, um, so I, you know, that succession issue is a major driver as well because, you know, these, you know, in the past, these asset managers, did have to hand over their businesses for free. They were custodians of these businesses, not owners of them. Hmm. But now there's a massive market to sell asset management businesses. Then, you know, the idea of handing it over to the next generation for them to carpet bag and sell it isn't very attractive. So that dynamic is, is you know, is around and, you know, it's understandable. So is this kind of the same thing that happened in the city after the Big Bang when all of the private banks this is before my time effectively sold <coughs> sold out and listed to when the americans came and it makes total sense but the problem with it of course is that you go from being a partnership with all of its idiosyncrasies and drawbacks um but but with the kind of the collegiate nature and the alignment that that brings and the perpetuity that it has mm-hmm. to being beholden to short-term mm. pressures. Goldman Sachs has managed okay, hasn't it? So I think these businesses are so huge now. Um, you know, the asset management is really the new banks. And mm. so um, I think, you know, if they have the scale, that they'll make it work. Obviously, if you're small, you've got no access to, to those markets. There, will be, there are lots of those smaller managers in the UK mid-market that will continue to operate in the same way that they used to do with handing over to the next generation because that's kind of what happens anyway in that's you know that the, that's just happens naturally but if you've institutionalized to the extent some of these businesses have then it stops being any one individual and and then, and then you can monetize does that point towards the consolidation of the sector I think it, it that, that's what's been happening, isn't mm. it? And I think it... But that, it, that trend will continue. You'd think. You're seeing quite a lot of consolidation. You're seeing a lot of traditional asset managers trying to get into alternatives. Um, and <clears throat> and they, they are another buyer. So you've got the public markets. You've got all these funds with who are prepared to buy stakes in managers. Um, you've got consolidation. And, and you've got traditional asset managers wanting to get into this space and prepare to pay strategic premiums to buy um, alternative asset managers. Could this be a driver to general efficiency across the industry, by which I mean, you know, there are many things about private markets that are 
almost deliberately inefficient, such as the, the process of raising funds and structuring and so on. And I know it's all good business for you guys, but there are surely um, ways to standardise this that that will probably be welcome as the market becomes more consolidated. I think the only problem with that is actually part of the charm of the industry at the moment is the is this, is the fact that it's so relationship based, and I think that goes for both from raising capital right through to deployment of capital and gives gives you the pre, the period of time over which to allow the returns to occur observe how the business is performing make make changes that are 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 more strategic and allow them allow them to be embedded to re, realize the returns if you start going down the route of where say the public markets are in in the way that they perhaps are a bit more cutthroat and really sort of institutionalize the fundraising process and it becomes almost formulaic as opposed to relationship-based and having to actually find the right pools of capital. I think you suddenly start getting a very linear relationship between how quickly you then have to deploy the capital and potentially how quickly you might need to realize it uh, because the patience of that capital may change. There's something to be lost there, but perhaps there's an intermediate step where you could have some elements of change, especially the bigger bigger private equity houses, bigger credit houses, where perhaps there is some efficiency to be gained. But probably only in retail, isn't it? I mean, I can see with retailization there'd be quite a lot of commoditization, but in the institutional world, there's no real interest on either side for it to become simpler. I mean, everyone's got to justify their existence. And you see the very large asset managers wanting more bespoke arrangements, funds of one, rather than commingled funds. Um, and that's all about them, <clears throat> you know, showing that their stakeholders, that they are adding value. So I don't... Is it, not, is it not in the interests of institutional investors to have things simpler? Well, yes, but you know, they, you're seeing them having ever more concentrated relationships and, and trying to have deeper relationships with a smaller handful of managers. And I don't think, I think them showing their stakeholders that they have particular protections that you know, are representative of the value that they bring to that relationship means that they don't think there's any interest for them to simplify there's certainly no interest from our perspective for anything to get simpler so um and and also from a, just a regulatory and a tax perspective i mean you're operating in a you're not operating in a vacuum here right you're operating across many jurisdictions each with their own tax and regulatory rules and i mean those are not going to get simpler and you know they just don't allow for simplicity even if you wanted it i think so i just don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And institutional investors have a diversified book of business, or they should at least. And so actually the relative allocation to private markets is low compared to what they've got in other, other sectors where they already have the sort of commoditized approach. So part of the reason why they're going after this asset class is it's a developing asset class or that the managers are investing in developing assets. Mm. And so if you're going to do that, that takes a very different approach to something that's been priced on a price earnings basis over years of performance on a listed listed exchange, for example. So I think there is got, there is going to be a period of time where these institutional investors perhaps either, and we're seeing it at the moment where they're trying to rebalance their portfolios where their listed stocks are underperforming and private assets have held their value quite well. Um, but there will be a point in time if, you know, if everything stays equal, their potential allocation to private assets will increase. Uh, which we're seeing. And I think if you're if you're getting to that point, you do need to have the teams to actually really understand the risk they're writing. And to do that, you probably want to have, want to have the right contractual protections in place, mm. which is more complicated than going into, you know, a standard sort of BlackRock fund or something like that. Um, so I, I just don't think that's that easy to navigate. I mean, to distill another positive there, I guess, you get systemic risk when everything is standardized and, and formulized and you know, you, you can get uh, adaptive evolution if everything is constantly fluid and, and and you get innovation as well. So I guess it's not such a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe we could talk a little bit about the fundraising market. Um, I mean, are you seeing any any trends out there? Everything else is shifting. <clears throat> is, is, is our fundraising terms, our, our fundraising strategies? I think what we've seen is a greater propensity for... Um, funds to look at capital beyond these shores and perhaps beyond sort of your household name institutional investors. So be it in the US where if you're looking at um, your insurance market or your pensions fund market, 
historically there were some names that really jumped out that every you know everyone who was looking to raise would sort of target those investors and say that they've they've got to be sort of a headline investor. I think now you see more of a diversification to mid-size um, pension pots and also insurance businesses, and also an in- increase in high net worth individuals via private banks coming into um, into private assets. We've we've actually been undertaking some work more recently around looking at trends from an Asian perspective and allocation of capital to UK and EU managers. And there we've seen, I mean, from a new jurisdiction perspective, like some Malaysia perhaps attracting um, foreign foreign fund managers to go and raise there. But likes of South Korea, perhaps looking beyond their sort of top one or two and institutional investors to being more pools of capital who are perhaps more willing to allocate to the mid-market. So there's potentially room for growth there. I think, as as Damien was saying earlier, private credit is still a relatively new industry, certainly from a UK-EU perspective in its current guise. And when you step into where other sectors of asset management are in terms of their distribution approaches, be it in the US, LATAM, Asia, I think there is scope to go and raise more. And so I think these these firms are now starting to realize that and are willing to invest in having the, the local people to build the relationships and plug into local distributors. I think we see at the moment fewer actually having their own offices going out and raising capital, but I don't think that's a trend that's um, going to last particularly long because I think as soon as more success occurs from the likes of your KKRs and your Blackstones, I think it will prompt more UK and EU managers to go and do it. You've obviously done some work with regards to uh let's say, Asian sources of capital. I mean, how did that come about? Did you have the hypothesis that this was a potential? Did you start to see it happening? And, and how, how have you gone about ex, you know, exploring the, the potential there? Some of our clients, obviously, active raising in Asia. And you know, if we're structuring funds um, for those clients, we need to make sure that they're attra- not only can they invest where they want to invest, but that they're suitable to attract capital from the target jurisdictions. And so... I guess what starts with an exercise looking at tax and regulation soon sort of spills out into a broader sort of market survey in terms of you know what who the investors are and, and what they want the target products to look like, but also what structures they need to see. And I think, you know, it's I think in a it's true that we are in a more competitive fundraising environment. Funds need to try to hit their fundraising targets and the chairman says that might require them to look at slightly alternative sources and that means that your your structures need to adapt with that and you need to get ahead of issues that investors are going to raise and you, when you go and see investors you want to be able to tell them what they are interested in not be on the back foot so i think one of our jobs and you know for anyone else in the industry is to arm their clients in advance with the information they need to make those meetings go well and, and that's part of the reason we do what we do it's also, I mean, interesting from a fundraising perspective, certainly being in the UK, I mean, for the funds that are sterling denominated, the depreciation of the pound as well certainly does make it more attractive to foreign clients. And I think that's another reason why I think when you sort of think about, you know, I mean, I think David mentioned at the beginning around um, there's less pessimism. I think there's perhaps some cause for optimism there as well. I think if you're going to get deployment, I think people do see the UK as being relatively cheap right now for what has historically been a very stable economy. And so I think, you know, I think, I mean, and for Asian... But I think, you know, currency is an interesting question, right? Because, you know, private equity funds aren't hedging currencies. Credit funds hedging currency because, you know, FX movement is going to wipe out a credit fund return. But private equity funds don't generally hedge and they they rely on underlying hedging through the portfolio companies essentially by having a you know a global business that provides a natural hedge but you know i guess you know a, a fund that's invested in the a dollar fund that's invested in the uk you know over the last few years is probably sitting on some pretty heavy losses from an fx perspective and i wonder david the extent to which people will be concerned about that fx volatility and which i guess has all, that has always been the case. But, you know, since Brexit and, and other factors, as you know, there's quite a lot of pressure on the pound. There, there is. But, I mean, one of the things that's been sort of pretty well established since we departed the exchange rate mechanism in September 1992 is, is, is not to have, you know, currency targets, not to peg the pound against anybody else and to kind of let that fluctuate and to take 
you know, some of the strain. And that's precisely what happened um, after the referendum on in, in June 2016, and the pound fell very sharply. Then um, we obviously saw much more volatility last year in September following the mini-budget, Quasi Quateng's uh, mini-budget, and it sort of takes the strain. And I don't think either the government or the Bank of England is going to return to um, exchange rate targets or anything of that sort. But it, it does sort of, you know, suggest, you know, given where the pound is versus the dollar, you know, a, a, a sort of sense of, of where international investors view, view the UK. But, you know, to, to sort of build on on, 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 on Shailen's point about, you know, a bit more optimism, you know, there is a bit of talk about, well, maybe the pound is going to, to, to rally. And I mean, there was a point when people like Larry Summers were going to say we're, we're going to see parity between the pound and the dollar, and that's not the situation we're in at the moment. And if things calm down, you know, there is a view that the pound may... You know, I'm, I'm not certainly not making any predictions, but but you know there is there is a view out there that the pound may recover uh, a, a bit of ground. But look, I think the consensus is you know it is what it is, and we're certainly not going to see policy returning towards having um, targets. But it you know it comes at a cost, and you know, inflation is more of a problem because the pound is weak than, than mm. it otherwise would be. Yeah, they, they say that FX is not so much a beauty parade as an ugly parade. It's, it seems pretty bad sitting here in the UK, but actually, you know, elsewhere are struggling as well. So maybe Well, the, the dollar's been so strong mm. um, and, you know, the yen has had a difficult time and the euro, mm. not as much as the pound, but, you know, the euro has is, is, is been quite weak against the dollar. Um, and whether some of that will reverse and, you know, whether the... the whether the dollar was overvalued, and there's, there's got to be a possibility that that was the that was the case. Uh, and as you say, you know, other countries have got their own difficulties. <laughs> so, but but yeah, exchange rate targets are, are, are not on the agenda. So we're seeing new pockets of investors pop up around the globe. Now, one thing that's that struck me is that private equity still seems to be quite centred around the main um, uh, financial centres like London, New York. Um, I don't know Asia so, so well, but it, it's given the underlying activity is so distributed, the industry itself isn't so much. And I, and I do wonder whether that is a function of the sources of capital and that if you are discovering new sources of capital in Malaysia or wherever, yes, of course, they're going to find opportunities like the UK at the moment because of weak sterling, but they might also start to think, well, maybe there are some domestic opportunities that you could see a bit of a flowering potentially of the industry regionally, do you think? I think one of the things that makes the US and the UK attractive, and I think specifically the UK, is still what is a very, I hate to use the word again, stable regulatory regime. Mm. And I think we've got years of, in the UK, having had the FCA go out and sort of challenge businesses, set what is effective precedents that people know what they're working within. I think the problem with other jurisdictions, and I think same applies to some European jurisdictions. I mean, there was the investment firm's prudential regime that came into effect last year in the UK. And six months before that coming into effect in the UK, there was an equivalent in the EU, which has been hugely unpopular. But actually, if you look at how the UK is implemented, it's consistent with what they've done in the past. If you look at how the EU's approached it, it's been very, very sort of mixed in terms of reaction. And if you then go to Asia... When you say reaction, do you mean in terms, in terms of, of implementation? It's implementation the into the local law and, right. and then how, and even forgetting that, how the local supervision teams are tackling businesses and what, they approach to, what their approach to it is. If you then sort of roll, roll that out further into Asia, potentially um, other jurisdictions outside of the US, um, where they they don't have anything that's so specifically focused on how you govern your business, how you manage the risks within your business and what capital you need to sort of preserve the business. You're working in against a backdrop from a management perspective and from an investor's perspective of not having the certainty of that manager being there to return your assets. So part of it is capital preservation. When you come to the UK, you know you can trust the laws, regulations to make sure that you can at, at least have line of sight to getting your money back out. If you go to some of the other places where perhaps the protection isn't baked in and a manager goes and sort of inadvertently over-allocates to one, one strategy they think is going to be particularly profitable and blows, blows up the fund, there's perhaps less protection there. And therefore, I think 
the, the maturity of the UK market and, and New York as well as the centre makes it perhaps more attractive. And I think as that history builds up and you get perhaps more examples elsewhere, that could even out as, as most things globalise. But I, I don't know, Damien and I, David... I, I, I think use... asset managers look at capital and deployment entirely separately. So you're... Now, you might open up an office in Singapore, which is just a marketing office, right, to go and raise capital. That doesn't mean you're going to open an office in Singapore to deploy you know, a Pan-Asian credit fund. So I think I think managers do look at it differently. Now, one thing might lead to the other. Um, but often these, you know, these investors have got, there are good local managers for them to invest with. And actually, that's not what they're looking for. Or they to do direct investment locally. Um, they're looking for European managers to give them a different exposure. So, um, you know, clearly manage, some managers want to globalise, um, but others are just happy to stick to their market in terms of deployment, but try and raise money, you know, on a more global basis. What about um, uh, fundraising uh, across the US? That's a particularly politically polarised country these days. Is there, are there any, any trends there? There's a rise in the number of states who are adopting anti-ESG policies versus others who are becoming more pro-ESG. So, for example, if you want to go and raise money in Texas and you have any, and you have a very pro-ESG stance, that might be a prohibiting factor to raise money from the state there. As you see more focus on ESG globally, I think the US potentially will will adapt. But I think at the moment there's a bit of protectionist behaviour within the states where some of its industry are cru- crucial to its functioning. And therefore, I think there's a balance of what should they put their money into. So that, I think, at a particularly granular level is, is quite a trend. Um, I think that means that, managers need to be sensitive to that. I mean, you, d- you don't want to be going to talk to, you know, Texas teachers and, you know, going on too much about your anti-oil ESG policies. Now, obviously, you're not going to do that, but it... it it's much more nuanced. And I think, you know, investors, houses are going to need to shape their message to who they're talking to. And that's always been the case. But you know, I think on ESG, for, for someone who doesn't work in that space, you sort of think that ESG is a sort of one direction travel, right? It's all going that way. <coughs> and it's interesting to note that, you know, that isn't the case and that managers are going to have to adapt to their audience and otherwise they, you know, they could, they could suffer some, some boycotting. But, but this is still in the domain of marketing and I mean, by which I mean messaging uh, rather than contractual and, or regulatory issues that, that could deter Texas teachers or whoever. So in the EU, there's the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation which effectively requires you to do more if you say more. So there's three key articles within that, which are Article 6, which is integrating uh, ESG into risk management in your business, which most fund managers and their funds fall into by default. Um, And then those that are trying to do more and say more, which would be either to have climate-related targets or social-related targets, such as carbon reduction or increased diversity. And then you have Article 9, which... Interesting, actually, has in the last two, two or three quarters is the only EU fund category that has seen positive inflows of funds. Um, but that that requires you can still make financial return, but it's a, it's close, more closely aligned to having an overall environmentally sustainable fund and business, and therefore ensuring that you allocate capital not right. If you set up your funds in that way, and you're trying to say, raise capital in the US. Now, you may have a specific fund that goes and raises in the US, but you may get US investors into your existing fund. And if you set your objective to say, it, when we're targeting the EU market, we're going to have promote these two or three criteria. And actually, we think that looks sensible to go and target UK investors with that, Asian investors with that, US investors with that. And you set those up and you go to the US market. I think there is, absent specific law, the SEC has been quite strict on what it perceives to be greenwashing. And so therefore, if you are going to market a product into the US, even if you are saying that and you're playing down verbally or in your loose marketing literature, the relevant ESG credibility and criteria that you're functioning within, if if you've got your stated objectives, those I think you will perhaps still have to mark because that's the core of the fund and what it's going to be targeting to do. So 
that you won't be able to dial back. But I think it's the narrative around that and what the fund then sees through it. And I, I would guess in sort of somewhere like Texas, having an Article 8 fund in the EU and trying to sort of take that same investment approach or same fund, fund structure into the US would probably work because you can be so specific on what your objectives are. Having an Article 9 and having an environmentally sustainable business. And if you're saying oil and gas, for example, are going to be excluded from that sort of fund strategy, probably won't be possible to achieve within the context of raising money in Texas. Um, I'm not sure how I'm going to uh, bring this uh, very broad conversation to some kind of conclusion. Um, it occurs to me, Shailen, that stability has been a recurring recurring theme. And if there's one thing that we could maybe look to the governments of the world to, it's to provide as much stability as, as possible so that the private markets can do what they're supposed to do, which is to you know create value on the ground. Would you say that's a fair <laughs> just attempt at a summation from, from your side? I think for it seems to be my my word of the day, uh, so I'll, I'll I'll go with that. I think I think that's right. I think if you can get certainly from a UK government perspective, I think we've got so many good core fundamentals as an economy, and I think we can sort of tap into those and really focus on those without getting distracted, and hopefully without being distracted without uh, with without some of the political antics that are going on at the moment as well. The takeaway from some of the good underlying UK narrative, I think, it'll be helpful to. Yeah. Who's the prime minister again? <laughs> <laughs> and when's this going out? <laughs> <laughs> and David, from from listening to you, I, I have a much more, I've got to say, a positive outlook, particularly on the UK's position, than I did coming in here. Um, I don't normally have that. Effect. That's, <laughs> that's the usual impact. <laughs> well, look, I, I, look. I think there 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 are some you know there are some encouraging elements you know in terms of 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 where the economy is um, you know compared to where we thought it was. I mean, look, I, it's still going to be a tough year. We're still going to see a squeeze on living standards, not probably as big as we thought it was going to be, but it's still going to be difficult. The, the fiscal situation still remains pretty difficult, but it's a little bit better, we assume. We'll, we'll learn more on the 15th of March at the time of the budget, but you know, it's, it's a bit better than we thought it was going to be. Um, and the chances are, you know, by the time we get to the end of this year, all being well... You know, nothing dramatic happening with Ukraine and Russia and and and, and so on in a negative way. Um, that you know, we'll we'll start to see the economy growing. Uh, I mean, I I think the consensus we're hearing from most economists is that we're basically flatlining now. Mm. Um, and you know, the fear was that this was going to be a, a recession, <coughs> not necessarily a sharp recession, but we were going to see a recession. We're we're basically flatlining, um, and with with some. You know, reasonable hope that things are going to cheer up as we get towards the end of the year. But we are not, you know, this is not going to be boom time. It's not as bad as it looked a few months ago. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> and and Damien, from listening to you, I, I kind of have a, a perception of the private markets in general as a, as a kind of a much more globalised and globalising and fluid um, industry and situation. And potentially, I might, the perception that I might get speaking to fund managers one on one. Well, I mean, for sure. Um, but you know, the the UK is a key cog in that wheel, and I think we, the, I mean, talking very selfishly, all of us, I think, are you know, in one way or another, highly dependent on the UK having a very successful asset management industry, and you know, we, you know, that is really a you know the the asset management industry now is i think one of the jewels in the financial services uk crown and that is you know important to try and preserve that because it does produce a huge amount of tax revenues and and benefits the country and i think all of us just want to see that continue and to take our word of the day not perma crisis but stability um, you know, on, on the tax side, you know, stability on the tax side is going to be very important to ensuring that is the case. And, you know, while politically it's going to be very difficult for an incoming Labour government to, you know, have an attractive impatriate regime and uh, and preserve a, a, a competitive tax, carried interest tax regime, that will be the reality of what's required. And hopefully they leave themselves enough wriggle room to to, to facilitate that outcome. 
because otherwise it's going to not raise them revenue, it's going to cost them revenue and it's not going to be good for any of us. Amen. Well, Damien, Shailen, David, thank you so much for sparing your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fund Shack Podcast. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. This podcast was designed and produced by Linear B Group, a leading content marketing agency focused on financial and professional services. Thanks for listening.